We open the Holy Scriptures together to Ephesians chapter 2. We will read verses 1 through 10. Let us hear the word of the Lord beginning at Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Here we end our reading of the sacred scriptures. On the basis of this passage and the entire Bible, we consider question and answer eight of our Heidelberg Catechism, found on page four in the back of the Psalter. Here at the end of Lord's Day 3, the question is set before us. Are we then so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness? The answer, indeed we are, except we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Let us remember... That in our course through the Heidelberg Catechism, we are in the first of the Catechism's three sections. Each of the main sections of the Catechism explains to us one of the essential ingredients of true Christian happiness. To enjoy comfort and to live and die happily, we must know how great our sins and miseries are, how we may be delivered from those sins and miseries, and how we are to show our thankfulness to God for his deliverance. We are considering that first component of true saving knowledge, that first ingredient of true happiness, knowing the reality of our sins and our miseries. Lord's Day 3 has several foundational truths that undergird the Christian worldview and perspective on all of life. And so, 
we've slowed down a little bit to consider each of these three questions and answers one by one, that we may look more closely and ponder these foundational truths. In Lord's Day 3, the Catechism is explaining to us the Bible's teaching on the origin of sin. And the preceding question and answers have showed us that sin does not originate with God. He is not the author of sin such that he is to be blamed for sin. For God created man and mankind good, upright, and in his own image. But the origin of sin lies in the fall of man, which was instigated by the devil. When our first parents, Adam and Eve, willingly and willfully plunged themselves into sin and dragged the rest of the human race down with them. Now we come to question and answer eight, which focuses our attention now on the results of that fall of humankind into sin. And it narrows our focus particularly upon the black heart of human misery, that which is at the core of human misery, namely the reality of spiritual corruption. That the fall of mankind into sin brought about the total corruption of the human nature such that man, by nature, is born dead in trespasses and sins. As the Catechism explains it, wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all evil. That's how man comes into the world. That's how every human being is born into the world with this corrupt nature which comes from the fall. And this biblical teaching, this awful spiritual reality, In theology, we call total depravity. Depravity refers to corruption. It refers to the twisting of man's nature so that it is twisted and turned around. It becomes the complete reverse of what God created the human nature to be. And it's total. Man, as a result of the fall, has become totally sinful. It's not that he's just a little bit sinful or some parts of him are sinful, but every part of him is totally sinful. Total depravity. It's a very grim subject, and yet one which the Bible teaches. We sang of that grim teaching in Psalm 14, where David, by the inspiration of the Spirit, lays it out so clearly in that psalm. And it is a grim teaching that we must understand and must confess, so that we know ourselves by nature. Not... So that we may despair. Not so that we may melt into a puddle and say. There's no worth in living. There's nothing I can do but sit here and bemoan the reality of my sins. This truth must lead us to confess our sins humbly before God. But remember. The organization of the catechism which itself is designed to teach us biblical truth. We must know our sins and miseries so that we may see our need for deliverance and be turned to look by faith to the one who saves us from our sins and miseries, the only one who saves 
totally from total depravity. Jesus Christ. And that's the positive. The positive that we want to keep before us as we study this grim teaching of the Bible. When we know the depth, the height, the length and the breadth of human sinfulness, we will all the more appreciate, rejoice in, and give thanks for the depth, the height, the length, and the breadth of the love and grace of God demonstrated and given to us in Jesus Christ. That's why the knowledge of our sin and misery is a part true happiness. We see ourselves apart from grace. We see how greatly we need that grace. And we see how wonderful and full a Savior we have in Christ. So let's take up the consideration of this teaching of the Bible on the corruption of the human race. Our theme is total depravity. We're going to explain and apply that doctrine this morning. First, we're going to look at the question, so corrupt? Is it true that the human race is so corrupt? Secondly, indeed we are. It's language taken from the answer. It's the answer to that question, indeed we are. And then finally, accept. There we look at the last part of the answer, which sets before us the reality of God's saving grace, which delivers us from our depravity. So corrupt, is it true? Is it really true that the fall of Adam into sin brought about such dire consequences that we can say this, that man is so corrupt that he is wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness? By nature, that's who he is? The answer is yes. That's how serious the fall of man into sin was. And now question and answer 8 particularly gives us a straightforward explanation of what total depravity is. So great is the sinfulness of man that he is wholly incapable of any good and inclined to all wickedness. Let the two parts of that definition of total depravity sink in a minute. That's all encompassing. Not only is man by nature destitute of all that is good, but he is incapable of producing anything that is good. And in fact, his entire heart is oriented towards evil. His affections, his thoughts, his desires are all directed in the direction of sin. And so by nature, what flows out of man's inward life are words and deeds that are corrupt. That are against God and his law and his will. To understand this truth of total depravity. We go to Ephesians 2. Which sets before us one of the Bible's main ways of describing the corruption of the human race. After the fall. And the term that Ephesians 2 uses to teach total depravity is spiritual death. We notice this in both verse 1 and verse 5. In verse 1, the apostle says, And you hath he quickened who were dead 
in trespasses and sins. And what he's saying there is, by sin you died. And now this is the condition of the human race by nature, dead in sin. Jumping to verse 5. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together in Christ. That's man's, that's fallen man's natural condition. Dead in sin. When Adam fell, the human race died. And the human race died in several senses. The human race died physically. The moment Adam, our first head, fell. That doesn't mean that Adam and Eve dropped dead the moment they ate the fruit from the forbidden tree. But what it means is that the power of corruption began exerting itself upon them. Their bodies, their physical beings became subject to corruption. They began dying physically. But death is not just a physical thing. Death is a spiritual thing. The moment our first parents disobeyed, they died spiritually. The spiritual life with which they were created was extinguished. Their light became darkness. They became guilty. Their natures corrupted. And they became liable to punishment. Which is death in the third and ultimate sense. Eternal death. That's what hell is. It's being separated from God, cast away from Him on account of sins, and justly receiving the outpouring of His holy wrath and judgment. That's the death to which the human race became subject at the fall. Total depravity is the spiritual death of the human nature. And we can understand this a little better when we understand death from a biblical perspective rather than a clinical perspective. The view of our modern society is that death is simply the end of physical life which leads to the cessation of existence. Death means the end of physical life at which point a creature ceases to exist. But that's not the biblical definition of death. The biblical idea of death is not non-existence, but ruined existence. Not non-existence, but ruined existence. That's what death is. The essence of death is separation from God. To be dead at its core, is to be apart from God and against God. Separation from God, enmity against God. Perhaps you think of the familiar line in Psalter 203. To live apart from God is death. Another one of our Reformed creeds, the Belgic Confession in Article 14 describes Adam's fall into sin this way. That Adam, by sin, separated himself from God, who was his true life, having corrupted his whole nature, whereby he made himself liable to corporal, that is bodily, and spiritual death. That's the awful reality of death. Death is not ceasing to exist, but death is entering into a ruined form of existence. Being apart and against 
the living God who is life. And the essence of true life is to abide in the fellowship and under the favor and in the love of the one true and living God. Death is the opposite of that. And when man fell, that's what happened to man's whole nature. That is all that the human being is, body and soul. He died spiritually so that his nature became twisted. That's really what depraved means. Depraved is something that's twisted in upon itself and turned contrary to what it's supposed to be. All that man is became a reverse of what God created the human nature to be. So that man, who is created to be turned towards God, and to live before the face of God, and to love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, now man by nature is turned away from God. He despises God. He hates God's law. He devotes all of the powers with which God has created him to the pursuit of sin. Rather than loving God, he loves himself. Rather than loving his neighbor as himself, in the service of God, he uses his neighbor for his own advantage and exploits his neighbor. That's spiritual death in action. That's total depravity. Man's nature turned and twisted away from God so that man, from a spiritual ethical perspective, as the catechism said earlier, is prone to hate God and neighbor. And as our present Lord's Day says, is wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all evil. Going back to the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 6 verse 5, God looks down upon the human race shortly before he sends the flood in the days of Noah. And in Genesis 6 verse 5, we are given a God's eye view of the human nature after the fall. And the God's eye view of the human nature is this. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's how bad the fall was. That's how bad the consequences and the outcome of the fall are. That's how lost the human race is when left to itself. And that's how lost and miserable you and I are by nature unless God rescues us. Because you see, We looked at this a little bit last time we studied Lord's Day 3. When Adam fell, he corrupted his human nature, but God created in Father Adam, our first father, our head, God created in him the human nature. And so we have inherited that totally depraved nature from Father Adam, such that we are conceived and born dead in trespasses and sins. The inspired words of the psalmist in Psalm 51 verse 5 perhaps spring into your mind because these words are familiar. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. And we know that the psalmist there is not teaching that the conception of a child is a sinful thing. But what the psalmist is teaching there is that from the moment of conception, 
I was sinful. I was conceived in sin, shapen in iniquity, because at the moment of conception, when I came into being, there was passed down to me from my parents that totally depraved nature which they inherited from their parents going all the way back to our first parents, Adam and Eve. That's why Jesus in instructing Nicodemus in John 3 about these truths said in verse 5, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Remember that often in the New Testament scriptures, flesh is a term that's used not simply to describe the material substance of which our bodies are made, but flesh describes our fallen spiritual condition. Flesh is our old, fallen, depraved nature. What Jesus is saying there is those that are born of the flesh are flesh. By nature, we are born with no spiritual life in us. We are born Dead. That's how bad, once again, the fall is. The fall did not just blemish the human nature. The fall did not merely greatly damage the human nature. The fall killed the human nature. Dead. It's a bitter, unpalatable truth, isn't it? That's why church history is peppered with attempts to tone this truth down or to sweeten it a little bit by seasoning it with some humanistic error. Man doesn't want to face the reality of what he has become and what he is by nature and what the fall has done. But the Bible won't allow that. We must submit ourselves to the word of God and swallow this bitter truth and affirm what the psalmist says in Psalm 14 verse 3 concerning the human race that by nature there is none that doeth good No, not one. Total depravity. That's the depth, the height, the length, the breadth of human misery. Misery out of which no man of himself can escape. Misery out of which no man can be delivered apart from the grace of God. We will come to that in the third point. But now going to the second point. In the first, we've briefly, in a straightforward way, walked through what total depravity is and seen the awful effects of the fall What that means for the natural condition of the human race. That man is spiritually dead by nature. Now we need to affirm that. As our confession. You notice that that's the way the catechism is written. It's written to have us affirm this truth as our confession. Question 8 asks. And in the question the doctrine is really set forth. In the question, we have point one of the sermon. Are we then so corrupt 
that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness. We've explained what that means. We've looked at what that is. But now, here's the believing response to that question. The confession we must make. Indeed, we are. Indeed, we are. The Catechism bids us to take ownership of this Bible teaching and apply it to ourselves. The Catechism puts this confession in our mouths and it also bids us to confess it personally. Total depravity is a doctrine that must not be left out there in the abstract. Nor must total depravity be a confession we make about the world merely, or about people out there, or other people. So that when we think of total depravity and the utter corruption of the human race, that that truth sets before us, we must not be thinking simply about other people. The catechism is explaining this truth for believers, the Christian church. And the catechism, by design, uses first person pronouns. Are we then so corrupt? Not are they, not are some people, are we? And the answer, indeed, we are. This is a truth that the catechism, based on the scriptures, would have us ponder, apply, confess, personally. Indeed we are. Indeed I am. By nature. Think about that. That's me. By myself, that's me. Without the divine intervention of sovereign grace, that's me. That's my natural condition. So corrupt. Fully sinful. Destitute of all good. Inclined to all evil. To borrow the words of John Calvin, my human nature has become the fertile breeding ground of all sorts of sins. By nature, I am turned away from God, prone to hate Him and my neighbor. And rather than come to Him, rather than love Him, rather than acknowledge my sins to Him, I would do and do the same thing that our first parents did after the fall. Run away and try to cover the nakedness of my guilt with all of these aprons of fig leaves that I sow for myself. All my excuses. All the works that I do to try to make myself feel good. So many other things. By nature, this is who I am as a fallen child of Adam. And now, as believers, as those who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, which we're going to get to shortly, I still have that corrupt human nature with me. I still have my old man of sin, that is the principle of indwelling sin that is embedded within me. That old man, I still have my sinful flesh, such that, according to that old man, 
totally depraved by nature, still carry that sinful flesh around with me everywhere. It's important that we affirm that we affirm that confession personally as the catechism bids us to do. To make the applications personal, let's let's think of several reasons why it's important to affirm this personally. We go back to the great theme of the catechism. Seeing the depth, the height, the length, and the breadth of my sin puts me in the proper spiritual posture to appreciate the depth, the height, the length, and the breadth of the love and grace of God and Jesus Christ. And that too mustn't just be in the abstract, but must be personal. When I personally see the depths of my fallenness, the depths of my helplessness, the depths of the corruption of my nature, inherited like a hereditary disease back from Father Adam, when I see that personally, then I know by grace my need for Christ. And there's a difference there between knowing abstractly that there is such a thing as a need for Christ or that human beings need Christ and I need Christ. The gospel is meant to make us feel personally in the depths of our beings that need. I need Christ. I need the depth and the height and the length and the breadth of his love and his grace. I need it all. Because I am helpless of myself. I have nothing of myself. I can't pick myself up and deliver myself from the abyss of human misery. There's no education this world offers. There's no technology. There's no escape. There's nothing man can make or do that can solve the problem of total depravity. I need Christ. Christ alone. When we answer with the catechism, indeed we are. That indeed we are leads us to more fully see and appreciate our need for Christ and how Christ Perfectly supplies that need. Flowing out of that then. A personal affirmation of the truth of total depravity. That this is who we are by nature. Cultivates in us an awareness. A deeper awareness. Of the reality. That only God can save. And a deeper awareness of the majesty, the wonder of his grace. The Bible passage that we read, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, ends with some of scripture's most well-known verses to us as reformed Christians. We 
Many of us likely know Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 by heart. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. There's the whole gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That gospel in a nutshell. But now, that glorious gospel simply stated in verses 8 through 10, shines all the more brilliantly against the backdrop of the first part of the chapter. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Against the blackness of that spiritual death, the light of Christ shines the more brightly, and the glory of His grace is all the more magnified, and we are brought to our knees in worship and adoration. Look at this God. Look at this Christ. Look at what He has done. Look at His salvation. Comprehend the depths, the height, the length, and the breadth of all of those salvation blessings which this Christ has earned on the cross and which He now applies to us by the Spirit. Oh, come, let us adore Him. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Be thankful unto Him and bless His name. Cast yourself lovingly and trustingly upon the mercy of God and look to that one name given under heaven whereby we must be saved, Jesus Christ. See the power of that grace, the almighty power of that grace in Jesus Christ. If man was just spiritually weakened by the fall, It would take a strong, but not an almighty grace to rescue him. But the result of the fall is that man became spiritually dead, totally depraved. How wonderful, mighty is this grace of God that saves totally depraved sinners. His grace doesn't spiritually refurbish. It doesn't do some cosmetic work to fix us up a little bit. As Ephesians 2 says, it quickens. It raises the spiritually dead and gives them life and makes them alive and translates them out of darkness into marvelous light and takes spiritually dead sinners and makes them spiritually alive children of God. That is wonderful grace. And so personally affirming the indeed we are leads to a deeper affirmation and confession of the glory and the power of the grace of God. Finally, by way of application, When we personally affirm the truth of total depravity and say from the heart, indeed we are by nature, this Bible truth becomes a continual source of humility throughout our lives. Pride, that most basic 
most pernicious of sins so easily balloons our egos. And total depravity is a pointed pin that pops the balloon of pride. Because it shows us that of ourselves, we have nothing to boast. Of ourselves, we have to confess what Ephesians 2 says, dead in trespasses and sins. The man who thinks he is something, Or the man who thinks that he has done something such that he's a bit better than other people. Think upon the reality. Dead in sins. And unless God operated sovereignly on you without your help, you would be a spiritual corpse. There's no room for pride. It's pushed out by the personal affirmation of total depravity of the confession. Indeed, we are by nature. Keeps us humble in this way too. When we really understand the implications of total depravity, that means we're not going to underestimate our sinful nature. Prone to all wickedness. That's in us. That's in me. That's in you. When we really understand what that means, we're going to take spiritual watchfulness more seriously. We're going to be more earnest in prayer. We're going to put on the whole armor of God. We are going to walk by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This truth must lead us not to underestimate our sinful nature. And our own capacity for evil. We will exercise ourselves more diligently in fleeing from temptation. Not toying with sin. Watchfulness flows out of awareness. Total depravity. And then when that brother or that sister falls into a great sin in the church. I don't stick my nose up at them. How could he do that? How could she do that? Because the nature out of which that sin came is the same nature I have. And I am prone to that sin too. And so a personal affirmation of the indeed we are should lead me not to stick my nose up at the struggling sinner in the church but to have a heart of compassion because I'm on the same level. I'm engaged in the same battle. I'm not better. I'm in the trenches of the spiritual warfare of the Christian life with that brother and sister. And so the fact that they fell means they don't need my contempt, but they need my help and my care. And so I'll come alongside them as is appropriate and as I can to help, encourage, and bring the word of God. Understanding total depravity brings humility. Now the last part of question eight. Accept. Are we then so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness? Indeed we are. Except we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. What this last part of question 8 does is it teaches us that total depravity is not the last word 
in the life of the Christian. Now we're going to see, and let's understand right from the beginning, that the word accept is not meant to take back everything that the catechism has set up to this point. It does not nullify or remove the teaching of total depravity so that we say, oh, this isn't relevant to us anymore. But what the word accept does is teach us there's more. We don't put a period behind total depravity. We don't read the catechism this way. Are we then so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of of doing any good and inclined to all evil? Indeed we are, period, nothing more to be said, that's it. No, there is a vitally important accept here. And we must understand that accept. And we must affirm that accept just as much as we affirm the indeed we are. To deny either of those is to truncate the doctrine of Scripture. Indeed we are by nature. But here's the wonder. God has worked a miracle. And that miracle is called salvation by grace. And at the start of the application of all of the blessings of salvation is this reality that the Catechism points out, regeneration. Indeed, we are, except we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. And we must say that about the believer. We have that old man of sin, that totally corrupt flesh. But that's not all that the believer is now. This also is true. I'm regenerated by the Spirit of God. What's that mean? Regeneration. That theological term means rebirth. Rebirth, or new birth, or birth from above. It's what Jesus teaches Nicodemus in John 3, verse 3. Except a man be born again. And that word born again is regenerated. Except a man be regenerated, born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus goes on in verse 5 to say, Except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. We're born again by the Spirit. What is that new birth? It's the gift of the new life of Christ. When you are born, you enter into life. You enter into this world as a living creature. A new birth is an entrance into new life. And now this new birth of regeneration is not a rebirth physically, but it is a rebirth spiritually. We were born spiritually dead. Regeneration is the wonder work of God whereby he causes us to be born again spiritually alive. He implants into the heart of the elect child of God the seed of the new life of Jesus Christ so that we are translated, that is brought out of darkness in the depth of our being, brought out of darkness into light, brought out of death into life. We are made spiritually alive again. When Jesus speaks of rebirth in John 3, he's teaching the very same reality that the Apostle Paul does in Ephesians 2 when he speaks of quickening. In our language today, quickening means to make someone faster. But here, in the Old English of the King James, quickening means to resurrect, to make alive. And so we read in Ephesians 2 verse 1, And you hath he quickened. You can read it this way, You hath he raised from the dead. Spiritually resurrected. Verse 5. Even when we were dead in sins. Hath resurrected us together with Christ. Regeneration. 
is spiritual resurrection. The Holy Spirit sovereignly, without our aid, enters into our hearts and gives us a new heart that throbs and beats with the spiritual life of Christ. This regeneration was earned and obtained for us by Christ's work on the cross. It's a blessing of salvation that he merited for us. And it's a blessing that he applies to us by the mysterious inward operation of the Holy Spirit. Causing us to be spiritually reborn. And so answer 8 says, indeed we are, except we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. What the catechism is teaching there is that the regenerating work of the Spirit decisively breaks the bondage, the chains of our sin. Decisively breaks the dominion of sin over us. Regeneration raises us from spiritual death unto spiritual life. So that although the old man is still with us, though we still have much indwelling sin, even though we keep that totally depraved sinful flesh till the day of our death, that's not all there is now. In fact, our identity is now rooted in a new man, the new man in Jesus Christ, the new heart that is given to us by regeneration. And the seat of our identity now is in the new man in Jesus Christ. Such that the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 that old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We are new creatures in Christ. Regeneration accomplishes a radical inward spiritual change. So that while we affirm personally that by nature... We are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all evil. Indeed we are. In the same breath we affirm. I'm regenerated by the Spirit of God. And by the power of the Spirit. Living out of that new heart. I'm able to do good. I'm able to love God. God's sovereign grace. Has changed my heart. I'm not dead anymore. I'm quickened with Christ. By grace I am saved. I am his workmanship of grace. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Which God hath before ordained that I should walk in them. I am a new creature. I'm not just the old man anymore. Another one of our Reformed creeds, Canons of Dort and Heads 3-4, Article 13, expresses this reality this way. The manner of this operation, talking about the Spirit's work of regeneration, the manner of this operation cannot be fully comprehended by believers in this life. Notwithstanding which, They rest satisfied with knowing and experiencing that by this grace of God, they are enabled to believe with the heart and love their Savior. That's the point. Regeneration gives us new life so that we are not dead anymore. We're alive. 
unto God. Alive with the new life of Jesus Christ. And because we are alive, by the work of the Spirit in the regenerated heart, we are able to walk in newness of life. And so we conclude with a couple of applications that reinforce the importance of this last part of the answer. The glory of God. That's why we affirm both the indeed we are and the except we are regenerated. We affirm both and we don't truncate the Bible's theology but embrace heartily both of these realities because that glorifies God. It shows the power of the grace of Jesus Christ to save sinners, to resurrect the spiritually dead. If you put a period behind the indeed we are and downplay and minimize and get rid of the except we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, you're really downplaying and pushing aside the saving efficacy of the work of Christ. This is what Christ and his spirit does with the spiritually dead. He raises them. He makes them temples of the Holy Spirit. Christian, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. The Holy Spirit doesn't dwell in a spiritual corpse. The Holy Spirit dwells in a living believer whom he makes his temple. You're alive. And because you're alive, the Spirit's operation in you leads you to bring forth consciously and actively the fruits of the Spirit. If you were still spiritually dead, it would be impossible for you to bear the fruits of the Spirit. But the believer bears those fruits because he's alive. She's alive. And what joy then, this last part of question and answer 8 gives us. Though we have considered and affirmed the grim reality of total depravity, the last part of the answer shows us the grace of God conquers. The grace of God saves. Christ saves from total depravity and gives us life. And what joy that brings us. The life of regeneration now, that seed of new life in our hearts, is a taste, a foretaste of heaven. It's one of the spoils of Christ's victory on the cross. We still have the old man. We still have to struggle against sin. But the fullness of our redemption is coming and will surely come. And the day will come when totally depraved old man who still cleaves to us turns into dust. is gone forever. And the new life of regeneration remains eternally in full bloom. So the calling, live, live. You're alive, beloved. You're alive, spiritually alive. Fight against sin, strive against it. By the power of the Spirit, overcome it. Walk in those good works which God hath before ordained that you should walk in them. Out of thankfulness to him, you're alive. Think of Jesus raising Lazarus. Lazarus. There's a picture of what has been done for you spiritually. Jesus stood and he looked into that cavernous, dark entrance of Lazarus' tomb where Lazarus' corpse was laying. And Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And what was the effect of the powerful word of Jesus Christ? 
Did Lazarus stay a tomb dweller? Did he stay there and say, well, I can't do anything because I'm dead. I'm just going to sit here in the tomb. No, he came forth in glorious life. Child of God, regenerated by the Spirit, you've been made alive. You're not a tomb dweller. Live. Bear fruit. Honor the God who raised you from the dead. Be that workmanship of grace for the praise of his glorious grace. Till the day your earthly pilgrimage ends and God's workmanship with you is finished. So as we have thought upon this truth, Let us end there with our eyes fixed on Christ and the wonder of his saving grace. Amen. Faithful God and heavenly Father, thou hast humbled us with the truth of total depravity. We affirm it personally that this is who we are by nature. Yet we rejoice in the wonderful truth of saving grace of regeneration, that we were dead, but now we are alive through the spirit of the living Christ. Make us fruitful. Help us to live, to live out of that new life in Christ, that it may all redound to thy praise. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.